Greetings and welcome to the postscript. Welcome, welcome. This is where we discuss the script that has not been written. Yeah, free from all boundaries. <laughs> yes, free of all human moral constraints of discussion. Yeah. So, what you been up to lately? Well, I kind of had an interesting situation that happened to me recently. I was at my studio and I was going to go see a film with some mates. And I decided to go early because the weather was nice. And at the bus stop, there's a guy who's asking me for directions for the hospital. And I just double check it and I tell him which bus he should go. And then I look over at him and I can see he's kind of holding himself over. He looks a bit worse for wear. And then I kind of small talk a little bit to him. And it turns out that he's been assaulted. Oh, wow. And he's bleeding. I can see he's holding a wound. Jeez. And he also has a dog this guy does not look well, so I decide to follow him to the hospital. It's just a couple of stops away because he's not really capable of walking well on his own. He's not like bleeding all over, but I, I can see he's holding blood and he's scratching over it and he's clearly in a lot of pain. And um, I kind of thinking, you know, would have been an idea to take a taxi instead, but I kind of help him on the bus and, and I'm standing next to him on the bus and kind of talking to him, trying to make sure that he's awake, doesn't fall asleep or anything, whilst this dog is also kind of unsettled and apparently She's recently had puppies, so she's extra protective. Anyway, so we get out at the hospital and he needs to sit a bit down and take a rest. And, and this dog collar is kind of loose. So the dog gets out of the harness. Oh, no. It stays close, though. And he's really upset. He's, he's worried that the dog may be put down for having defended him against these attackers. Oh. He's really concerned about the dog and, and her newly had puppies and stuff. And another lady sees the situation, so she helps and she managed to take uh, hold of the dog while he's leaning on me and we walk to the hospital. I'm trying as best I can to help him. He's very unstable and he falls to the ground once and I kind of help him up and, and he sits down a bit and she goes to get some medical help. But at some point he just stands up and decides he's going to walk and he's a bit more stable at this point. Yeah. So we get to the uh, emergency entrance and it doesn't actually open by itself. So, so I'm standing there waiting for someone to come out and he's starting to get agitated again about this dog running away or who's going to watch the dog or whatever. Eventually, some nurses come out and I tell them there's a guy who's been attacked and he's bleeding and stuff. So they come out with like a stretcher on wheels. But then he starts getting really uneasy about the dog again and refuses to go on that. And the dog manages to run away again, no. free from his harness. <laughs> but this lady comes up again and sees this and holds the dog. And he sort of calms down. So he sits on the gate and I help him onto the stretcher. And he's let inside. And that seems to be all right. It seems like he's not severely wounded. Anyway, so I take care of the dog and talk a bit with the nurses. And they say they're going to get the sister to come. And I'm just waiting there for a bit. And they take over it. So that's situation kind of resolves seems to be okay like there's no immediate danger and the dog is going to be taken care of now i'm trying to get to my movie in time what were you watching well we were going to watch a quiet place too okay which you know i wasn't too keen on i mean i sort of like the first one as far as i understand the second one is more or less a rehash but you know anyway you're just watching something with mates that's fine yeah it's an entertaining sort of thing yeah so i was looking forward to that but I don't have much time now, so I'm kind of running to get the bus and it just goes straight in front of my nose before I get to the bus stop. So I'm running to the place where the intersection is where I can get the bus that goes down to the cinema. And eventually I get on that and it drives me down to the cinema and there's usually like a quarter of an hour of commercials. And I got there within like 13 minutes 
And I've, I've been exchanging some SMSs with my mate who was there. And he says, like, which of these cinema rooms it's in and the place they're sitting at. So as I get into the thing, I can't really see where they're showing the film. So I'm about to go and talk to these people standing outside one of the screening rooms. But then I see, OK, it's the one above. So instead of going talking to them, I go to the next floor and there's no one standing there. So I'm just going in and checking, like, where the seats are. And the film's just barely started. Mm. And I get to the right row and I'm starting to get a bit confused because some people, they kind of look like my mates, but they're moving away. So, okay, obviously they're not my mates. So I work further along and the seats where I know I'm supposed to be sitting, there's nobody there. So I go past the next person again and sit down and start looking at the film. And I look at it and say, okay, this could be a quiet place too. Like I can see like a, a skeleton in some dirt. <laughs> And there's something going on in the... This could be like a post-apocalyptic thing, but I'm starting to have my doubts. And slowly it's dawning on me. There's a couple of cinemas in Oslo that have very similar four-letter names with the same first letter. Yeah. And we'd be discussing which films to see, and we'd be discussing films at this cinema. But the other one was obviously at the other cinema. <laughs> this film, which was uh, First Cow, I kind of wanted to see more, actually, than The Quiet Place 2. Was it good? Yeah, well, that was the fun thing, though, because I, I really liked First Cow. It's the director made Wendy and Lucy, Kelly Riker. And yeah, it was a very enjoyable film, I thought. I quite liked it. And just by accident, I ended up seeing that instead of the other one. <laughs> so, happy endings, Yeah, I guess. That's nice. That does seem like a happy coincidence. Like, Quiet Place 2, I don't know. I think I watched Quiet Place just on Netflix or whatever. Yeah. I think those movies are probably better watched in a cinema. Mm. With the silence and stuff. I think so too, It's yeah. more important, but yeah. That's an interesting tale there. Yeah. Do you think your, your assaulted friend ended up... I spoke to the nurses before I left and they said he wasn't severely wounded. Well, I hope he's doing all right. Still pretty fucked up though. Yeah, weird situation. That doesn't really happen a lot. Like that area where I have my studio is it's not an aggressive place. It's a very calm, like families and stuff living yeah. there. Yeah, like Oslo does have its more dangerous spots, mm -hmm. like all capital cities in Europe almost. Mm -hmm. But it's not a particularly dangerous city. No, absolutely not. It's pretty okay. Yeah, pretty okay. <laughs> Like at night, there's certain areas you just do not go to, but that goes for most cities, I think. Oh. Yeah, that's a true tale. Yeah, yeah. Tale yeah. of cinema. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> sin and cinema. Yeah, sin and cinema. Assaults and movies. What about you? What, what have you been up to lately? Well, I, I finally finished uh, The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. All right. I finished it today. Trolldomsfjelle. Yeah, it's really good. It's really, really good. So I have. So yeah, I just uh, been sort of thinking about that and sort of reading about it. I like like when I finish a movie or a book or whatever, I like reading about it and sort of gathering my thoughts about how I felt about it and stuff. And I've been reading this book on and off for a year now, sort of putting it down and not reading for a couple of months and then picking it back up. Yeah, because it's quite a large... It's a large tome, yeah. if you will, but not just large. It's really dense has like a lot of intertextuality and, and stuff like that. Mm. So a lot of references, a lot of different languages, a lot of different characters that sort of represent different philosophical moods towards the mm. end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, sort of pre-World War One Europe. It's very dense and, and there's sort of different modes in it too. There's like a lot of high and low. There's sort of silly sequences and then very serious sequences. Mm. A lot of different funny characters, a lot of very serious moments, a lot of sort of 
death and disease and sort of juxtaposed with sort of funny and weird and, and almost comical characters and stuff. The whole thing is super dense mm. and, and the way it's written is it's beautiful. Even though, of course, I read it in translation, I don't actually read German mm. very well. Apparently it's been said to be quite untranslatable, but I found the translation quite good. Well, Norwegian and German is fairly similar. Yeah, they are. And uh, there was a lot of sort of discussion after the book on a certain, like some few areas that are quite difficult to translate, but Mm. sort of explanations of the translator and stuff. Always found that stuff quite fascinating because translation is its own art, especially when you have to translate not just from sort of one language to another, but sort of from one time period to another Mm. in addition to that. And especially with a book as dense as complex as this, it just becomes sort of, I would be fucking terrified of having to translate (laughs) something like that, you know? Like one of the major works of a Nobel laureate, sort of huge names of 20th century literature, it would be fucking terrifying. And each translation becomes its own work in a sense. Sometimes things can be gained, even if sometimes things can be lost. Translations can be very interesting. Like I typically prefer to read an author's original language if it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But if you do have like several languages that you can read in, sometimes it's interesting also to see what the translation is like, because some of these shifts can add as well. Oh, totally. And especially if there's some poetic dimension to the text, then how it's translated is even way more important. Like there are numerous different translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey, Mm. and I have my particular favorites. Oh, which one is that? I like the Lattimore translations. I find them really good, like this very beautiful mixture of accuracy and poeticism Mm. and like those are beautiful translations mm. in my view and some translations i just can't vibe with at all but there are uh, numerous to choose from so you can just see what you like see what you vibe with so if you were going to give like a very basic and quick plot outline for this thomas mann book what is like the, just a condensed so it's about this young engineering student that travels to the sanatorium in the alps to visit his sick nephew called Joachim, and uh, the main character is Hans Kostorp. And he basically just travels there to visit him, and he ends up staying for a long time. Well, I won't specify how much, but it okay. stays there a lot longer than expected anyway. Mm. And he meets a lot of different people and characters, and characters come and go, and some people die, some people mm. kill themselves, some people go and, and come back, and he sort of learns a lot. And um, there's a bunch of interesting characters that sort of philosophize and talk around him, and there's some interesting doctors, and a lot of interesting patients, and just a lot of comings and goings. And like the central theme is basically like, well, it, it all's a lot around time, but the central story is quite simple. It's just him staying at the sanatorium, basically, mm. in the sort of vein of Bildungsroman novel. Or, or what you call it, like uh, Wolfgang Goethe's sort of uh, coming-of-age novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of like that, but also like ironically that and satirizing that. Right. Because a lot of those sort of um, Sturmdrang novels end with some sort of enlightenment for the character. But in this case, I won't say explicitly how it ends, but it certainly it doesn't end with him sort of leveling up, as it were. Okay. <laughs> he levels down? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that either. It would spoil it. But it's it's interesting how it's handled because it's sort of framed as if he's sort of this, this young lad meant to be educated in mm. the ways of the world through this sort of stay at this peculiar place where sort of the climate is strange. It sort of snows in August mm. and, you know, it can be really hot in April or whatever. Mm. It's very strange. A lot of different winds his sort of health 
state is also kind of ambiguous. Mm. There's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of intertextuality, a lot of sort of differing viewpoints that are taken very seriously. And a lot of characters that could be allegorical, but they're too well written for that. They are their own people, but there are a lot of sort of people who are sort of emissaries of certain philosophical sort of viewpoints. Mm. And it's just beautifully written, super beautifully written. I'm assuming there's no supernatural elements. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, there, there are. There's actually very explicitly supernatural elements, too. All right. Around this time, there were a lot of, like, seances and ghost stuff and Ouija boards and stuff like that. And uh, that does play a certain part in this novel. Is that why it's a magic mountain? No, I think that's more of a... Like, the whole setting is kind of folkloric in a sense. It sort of deals with, like, people taking into the mountain and sort of staying there beyond the human world for a certain period of time mm. like you have this concept in scandinavian folklore called bergtagning like mountain taking would be the literal translation of that Bergtat. yeah like in pergint of henrik ibsen where you're taken into sort of the mountain and you're beyond human time and that does play like a very central role in this book a lot of themes though it's very interesting but yeah that might be like the central theme is this character sort of taken to this place where normal human laws and, and regulations don't really apply like there's <laughs> he's constantly describing the people of the flatlands All like right. they, they live in this <laughs> flatland world where everything's like sort of normal and boring and <laughs> but that doesn't apply everything's different and weird up in the mountains it's very fascinating <laughs> yeah that's that's kind of fun actually and it is funny he is actually quite a funny author a lot of the characters are just fucking historically idiotic they have like these seven tables banquet tables in the dining hall and mm. so he sort of sits next to a lot of different people and, and one of the characters is just this idiotic large woman who like constantly mispronounces words okay. to like <laughs> an insane effect like she calls one of Beethoven's symphonies for the erotica or whatever at the sort of deathbed of one of the patients and it's just so out of touch and it's funny a lot of stuff like that but sort of describe it with a certain humanity, too. It's mm. not just making fun of... Yeah, that does sound like a good book. Yeah, and I also spent like a year in that place. So it, the time element for me was also sort of strange. <laughs> it's sort of weird to finally be done with it because I've experienced so much up there in the mountain. So what's next for you uh, now that you're finished with this book? I kind of want to read more of him. Like, I read Death in Venice, and mm. that's a great book. Yeah, I read that, um, yeah. I kind of want to reread that too, but... It's quite short, so that's a quick read in a sense. Yeah, it's quite short. Like, he does really manage well with shorter books. I kind of want to read The House Buddenbrook, which is one of his first big novels from 1901, I think. Yeah, I got Dr. Faustus lying around. Yeah, that's one of his later novels, I think. Yeah, I haven't started checking it out, but it's definitely something I'd like to read. Yeah, it's interesting, like, the political climate in which this book was written, because it was started, like, I think around the start of World War One, And at the time, I think Thomas Mann was, like, a hardcore imperialist, like, German imperialist. Right. And he had a brother who was a lot more liberal, so they sort of jousted in a sort of literary fashion and in the newspapers and stuff. Oh, really? <laughs> like, uh, publicly? Yeah, as far as I know, anyway. I haven't read too much about it, but that's how I seem to recall having read that. But in the sort of aftermath of World War One, he became a lot more liberal and a lot more humanist. And it really affected the writing of the book and the sort of transitioning of the book into different themes and stuff. It's interesting. 
it was originally meant to have been a lot shorter too. It was meant to have been sort of a short story initially, <laughs> right? <laughs> meant as a sort of satirical take on Death in Venice, oh. and then it sort of grew and grew and grew. It's interesting, like the changes too, because it was written over a longer period, ten years or so, All eleven right. years. Uh, well, that's ten years of his life condensed to one year of your yeah, life. Yeah, but not continually. Like it was only seven years of writing, as far as I know. Okay, it, during like a eleven, twelve year period. Mm. So yeah, time, time is a strange thing, right? Mm. It really is. Well, I, I recently finished a book. I hadn't spent that long. It's not that big a book, but I've been wanting to finish it for a long while. And it's The Fall of Gondolin by Tolkien, which is one of these unfinished stories that Tolkien worked throughout his lifetime. And then... That's the last book uh, by Christopher Tolkien yeah. as editor, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's also kind of because he released, you know, lots of the mythological tales. And, and... But the last 10 years, it's sort of been yeah. the big tales. It's yeah. been uh, the story of Turin, Turambar and... Bernard Luthien. Yeah, Bernard Luthien. Like yeah. the big stories that Tolkien probably thought of as the main stories of his sort of authorship. Right. These three works have been beautifully released uh, in books and I got them and I'm, I'm very happy to read them. And, you know, you recommended Children of Hurin before as an unpleasant book to read, uh, yeah. which is very good. And, and that's kind of a complete story. Bernard Luthien and Follow Gondlin, they're more fragmented. They're versions of it that are more or less complete. And he presents the different versions and he talks a bit about them and yeah it's quite well done from an authorship research sort of angle he's a very meticulous researcher Absolutely. and very respectful of his father's work but it's also a really good read like uh, the fall of gondolin has such amazing battle scenes of balrogs and dragons and elvish heroes and the way it describes the siege itself of gondolin and the tragedy of it and how things play out. I mean, he writes in a heightened language. So there's not like psychology of characters and that sort of stuff. It's kind of uh, an arms removed, kind of like, you know, how mythology is often written. It's really epic. Like, it's so epic. The scope is huge, but in a really cool way. Yeah, the scope is huge and it does have really good characters and there's something really iconic about his images. And you can almost forget sometimes how talking... He's a great author. He's really good at drawing you in into situations like they're so loaded with imagery and they're so excited. I've almost forgotten how great he can be as a writer, just in terms of engaging you as a reader. Yeah, I've always thought of him as a really, really good writer and author. It is one of the like the stupidest tropes about Tolkien is that he was a bad writer. He just had a really good mythological universe. Which is preposterous. Yeah, it's total nonsense. The books are some of the most popular books ever. And it's not just because of the universe. Mm. It's the way he describes it and the way he chooses to write about it that draws you in. Like a lot of the things people complain about is the incessant landscape descriptions and stuff like that. Mm. But those things really pull you into the universe and grounds it in a way that makes it a lot different from much other fantasy or fantastical stories, especially at the time. It stood apart in that sense. It was very visually grounded and like just emotionally grounded in the sense of sort of sense perception and how it involves the characters and how they feel about it how they feel about the world around them how they sort of feel in the moment the thing that's so interesting about his authorship which you know is very similar to like mythological tales is that the scope is kind of larger than just the literary work it has world building in a very extensive 
scale that's adjacent to the experience you're not just experience the tale you're also experience the world and there's a lot of things that aren't explained are hinted to and referred to and that's led to so much other types of entertainment yeah specifically you know games and films and stuff have taken a lot from that approach but he just does it so well and um it's really juicy the further you get into it and the thing i really like about particularly the stories from the first age these stories he worked with throughout his life in many ways they're even more complex than like the hobbit and the lord of the rings they have a lot of troubled characters that have a lot of ambiguity to them they're much more like dark fantasy uh, i mean apart from lord of the rings and the hobbit i mean even lord of the rings has some sort of sense of tragedy towards the end or like inexorable loss but like in general apart from those i think his work is ultimately tragic almost every tale is tragic like the overall story of the elves is tragic the sort of falling away of the old world is tragic he has all these tragic heroes that die heroically but tragically and some just die tragically and there's a lot of slavery and just torment torture it's really dark a lot of it is super dark a lot of the accusations about lord of the rings being kind of black and white with good and evil in a lot of the other stories it's much more unclear the morality is much more convoluted and troubled in a way that kind of enriches his literary project so much yeah i mean you have stories the sort of description of him being black and white is sort of unfair because to my mind, it's more like black and gray. Yeah. So you do have pure evil in Tolkien, but you very rarely have pure good. Yeah. That's what I find interesting. So it's not just this sort of pure, perfect creatures. Like even elves are driven by jealousy and hatred and torment, especially like the Sansa Feanor. And, and you have like these stories of people being enslaved by Morgoth and later released only to be shunned by their friends mm. because they don't know if they are spies of the enemy and have been indoctrinated, which Morgoth has as a specific tactic, you know, used to sort of force people like almost like Manchurian candidate style into doing his bidding. And Glowring, of course, the dragon also has this almost like memory wipe ability where he kind of removes the personality from characters and then they just wander around forgetting who they are and ending up in like a European almost uh, narrative. Yeah, with Turin Turambar. Yes. Horrible uh, sort of (laughs) super classic tragedy. Yeah. I still think that's the darkest shit he's ever written. It's so, so horrible. But I I know he loved that story. Mm. He rewrote it and wrote it and rewrote it again and again and again. He always returns to it. Yeah, the thing is, uh, right now I'm I'm reading uh, Culevero, which is... um kind of the story he draws a lot from based on the the Finnish mythology the Kalevela. Kalevela is a character akin to Turin Turinbar. I just started reading that. It's just a short story I think and then there's a bunch of editing text around contextualizing it. But it seems like as a young man who's uh, potentially heroic, he has a lot of things going for him where probably things are going to go very bad. Yeah. Uh, Seems very promising. I think Tolkien explicitly started the Turin story as an attempt to rewrite the Kalevala. And so it grew from that Mm. specifically as a sort of retelling. That's, you know, mythology and stuff. That's how it works. Mm. You tell tales, you retell them, they change in the telling. Yeah. Now this book, I mean, the, these texts he wrote were from the 1930s and he kind of abandoned it. And there's been such a great, like the last few years, like releasing his unfinished stuff and really neat and well-presented packages. There has uh, been a lot of good like, Tolkien research mm. too. So it's fascinating to see. I wonder how it's going to be in the future now with Christopher Tolkien dead. I hope they're not going to sort of cannibalize his legacy. Mm. Who knows? 
You know, I'm still really curious, like this Lord of the Rings television show based on the Second Age with the Numenorians and stuff, like Aragorn's uh, forefathers and their confrontations with Sauron. Yeah, the Amazon show. I was trying not to mention the A word (laughs) funded with Bezos bucks. Yeah, Lex Luthor himself. (laughs) So, I mean, who knows? I mean, the potential for that. There's a lot of those outlines that are written down, but there's a lot of room for interpretation and potentially could be good. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I'm always hungry for more stuff in that universe, even if it's not, like, literally canonical. I like the Shadow of Mordor video games, even though yeah. they take a lot of liberties. Yeah, yeah, in the material. second one, Shelob's is like a half-sexy lady, half-spider Yeah, there's creature. just a lot of stupid stuff, but it's so cool to just run around Mordor killing orcs. <laughs> yeah, that nemesis system. Uh, it's great. The different designs of the orcs and stuff. It, yeah. It's really cool. So I, I don't really mind people taking some sort of liberties mm. with the source material, as long as it's sort of made clear that it's not canonical. But that's usually not sort of part of Well, it. I mean, when you have enough adaptations, it becomes like Dracula. Like you have loads of different versions and each of them reflect different things in their time. And it becomes interesting in itself as a, a source of adaptation. And Yeah, I mean, like... 50 years from now, there's going to be some interesting art house version of Lord of the Rings, right? Or some adaptation. Like you see with Dracula, there's so many adaptations, right? So when are we going to get like the Werner Herzog treatment of Mm. Tolkien's? Like it's going to have a sooner or later. Mm. It's going to sort of get into public domain and Mm. become this sort of this mythology. I mean, that was what he was set out to create anyway, Mm. mythology. And it's going to be treated as such in the future. And in many ways, I think he was more successful than anyone can have imagined in just inspiring world building to that scale. and Not just world building, but how we think about elves, for instance. Yeah. Like directly spelling of dwarven and elvish mm. and stuff. That shit didn't exist. Like he, he literally personally mm. changed the English language. And that's kind of impressive because that type of language change is incredibly rare. Yeah. Like usually it's very organic. It happens with the big authors like William Shakespeare, Chaucer, Tolkien. Well, with Shakespeare, it's a bit different because... You can't really be sure if his word usage was just like the first written examples of it Mm. and that it was quite common at the time, maybe. Mm. Like you don't really know for sure. But with Tolkien, we know very well that he sort of dreamt some of that shit up like uh, plain cloth, Mm. as it were. Mm. Kind of redirected language in a sense. As you say, how he conceptualized uh, folkloric or fairy tale or mythological. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive legacy. I'm sure he was dissatisfied with a lot he did, but he did pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he was easily satisfied, unfortunately. No, but he he wasn't like super critical either. He was mm. he was a very good reader of his own works. Mm. He viewed it more uh, in a scholarly light. Yeah. Like I wonder what I meant when I wrote that. Yeah, yeah. It couldn't mean this, but it could mean that. Yeah, and he kind of, instead of changing his mind about what things were, he kind of builds on it and lets the world grow itself in a sense. For sure. And he was also a master of retconning his own work to fit with his, you know, contemporary mythology. Mm. Like his earlier Hobbit versions, there were very big discrepancies and they were explained in a canonical context Mm. of sort of Bilbo changing the story because of the influence of the ring and stuff. It's fascinating. And something a lot of authors don't do because they don't really care that much about their world building to begin with or don't have problems with discrepancies. But he was always trying to tie stuff together. Well, who cares more about their world building than he did? That's a lifetime project, that is. Yeah, it was. Well, anyway, we've had a nice little talk about different stuff. Yeah. As usual, some sense of discussion of talking. Yeah, it comes up a lot. (laughs) 
Thank you, listener, for listening. The music for this episode was made by Emulium. That's Yuskarning and Svara Ogor. The artwork for the episode was made by me, Thomas Simpson Barmbra. And if you want to get in touch, please send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. That's it for now. Yeah. So, bye-bye. Take care. Thank you.